Our scripture passage today comes from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word today, we need the help of his spirit. So let us pray to God that he would grant us his spirit. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active even now written down for us by your chosen apostles and preserved for for us throughout the ages. Father, help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see. Help our hearts to be changed, that we might glory in all that Christ has done for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. While I was looking through my calendar... Planning for the next sermon series, we have this week and next week left in Paul's letter to the Philippians. I was looking where we have been and where we're headed, and I realized that this Sunday was the first Sunday one year ago where we were unable to meet for worship. Instead, I sent you a do-at-home liturgy, pre-recorded sermon. It's kind of a sad day, Uh, but by God's grace... Uh, we have been restored pretty much back to where we were. And so as we labor on through this book, we listen to what Paul has for the church, the idea of unity, the idea of being found together in Christ. It's helpful for us to think about moving forward into this next season. If anything, a year of Shutdowns and restrictions has simply been uh, challenging, and I think we've all kind of had enough. But what Paul calls us to is to really embrace all of the implications of what it means to be united to Christ. Remember last week we talked about true godliness and false godliness. There were people in the church that were causing divisions, telling people what they ought to do to follow these external things, Judaizers. There was even those who were more lawless as they wanted to understand what true Christian life ought to be. But Paul called the church to follow his example, to be humble, to have the right aim and attitude and actions, and to have their anchor in Christ. 
as he was striving forward to obtain the power of Christ's resurrection. Paul's ultimate goal in life and for the church was that they might know Christ, that they might be found in him, and that out of that reality, out of that true nature, that we are all being transformed by God's Spirit, these things might be true of us as he moves into some very pointed exhortations. This dynamic of the relationship within the church, the unity of the church, uh, straining together uh, towards the goal. Uh, It comes into focus here as Paul gives us some practical ways in which our union with Christ ought to inform our union with one another. Our big idea today is that being in Christ brings us peace. It brings us peace. It brings us unity. It is the basis and foundation and motivation for why we ought to be at peace with one another and at peace with God. But as we think about peace, as we think about standing firm, as Paul just told us in the last verse, we often look at our own lives and we see how easily we drift and don't stand firm, how Easy it is to lose sight of our aim, but also how filled with anxiety we are about our circumstance, about our future, even about our relationship with God. That is our sinful problem, that we have these hearts full of doubts, full of fears, full of anxieties. But Paul wants to remind us, to exhort us, to call us to task that we are not those type of people. By being united to Christ, we have peace. So there are three ways in which Paul illustrates the peace we have through Christ. We have peace in our relationships. We have peace internally. And we have God's peace present with us. So first, Christ brings peace in our relationships. Uh, Oftentimes, you would think that having a name in the Bible would be a great honor. That's oftentimes we name our children. You know, how many Matthews do you know or Johns? And yet, here, these two women are named in a way that maybe you wouldn't like your name to be recorded throughout all of history and God's Word. Judea and Syntyche are arguing about something. There's disunity in the church. And Paul knows these women personally. We're even told here in verse 3 that they labored side by side with them. And whatever their disagreement in here must not be of significant theological importance. Because, of course, Paul in other places adjudicates those disagreements and says, well, this person is right. Uh, and that person is wrong. And here, what Paul is calling them to must be something a bit more broad, more of a personality conflict, perhaps a false righteousness, as we talked about last week, one thinking that they might be better than the other. No doubt must be some sort of petty disagreement that Paul feels the freedom not to just Adjudicate it, but just to tell them that they ought to submit to one another, to be reconciled to one another. Paul also goes on to uh, 
to show how the church is involved in the peace between individuals in our relationships. He asks his faithful companion, all right, some, some elder, some spiritual leader, to help bring reconciliation to this relationship between these women, these leaders in the church, these companions of Paul, whose names are written in the book of life. He has no doubt about their standing before God, and he is calling them towards unity because it is part of their nature as being united to Christ. There's a parable in Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you're not familiar with it, the story goes this way. There is a man who has a great debt, 10,000 talents. And upon not being able to pay it, uh, the man he owed it to was going to put him in jail, but he pled for mercy. And he showed mercy to this man and, and let him go and forgave his debt. And then he goes on and finds a man who owed him 1,000 denarii. I'm sorry, 100 denarii. And he forces him to go to jail. He's violent with him until he can pay back every last penny. And when the forgiving master finds out about this, he is enraged. Now, those numbers, 10,000 talents and 100 denarii, aren't very uh, intelligible to us. And we think, oh, that seems like a bit more. But if we take those numbers and we translate them into modern U.S. currency, the difference between these two debts is that the first was forgiven $4 billion. Indeed, no way in which he could have ever paid back the debt. He would have to serve 100 life sentences, right? $4 billion. And he's forgiven completely. The debt wiped away. And then what does he go and do? He goes to the person that owes him 100 denarii, which if we translate into our current currency would be $14,000. It's still a lot of money. You could buy a pretty decent car. Help you with your down payment of your house. Certainly would be upset if I lost $14,000. But the difference between $4 billion and $14,000 can't be more drastically stated than in this parable. And it is this reality that Paul is drawing on between these two women. They belong to Jesus, as Paul has laid out for us, who was in the image of God and humbled himself, becoming a man. Not only that, being obedient like a servant and facing even death, the death of a criminal. Jesus doing all of this for his people, doing all of this for Judea and Syntyche, doing all of this for you and for me, forgiving our $4 billion in debt that we could never have paid back. And then these two women look at one another and bicker over their $14,000 debt towards one another. There's something about growing in our understanding of the grace we have received. Growing in our understanding of the love God has shown to us that is transforming in our relationships. It ought to be a mark of the church. 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, one of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are the children of God, adopted by what Christ has done for us. We are all here, not because of any righteous standing in our own actions, but because Christ has wiped away our debts. And yet, because of our sinful hearts, we are continually bickering, continually fighting over the pennies we have amongst one another. And Paul is entreating them. He is pleading with them. That word even carries this connotation that he's on his knees begging them to be reconciled. Being united to Christ brings us peace in our relationship. It brings us peace in our marriages, with our children, in our neighborhoods, but particularly in the church. It is so easy to fight over things. In fact, the longer I've been in ministry, the more I've actually heard you know, these stereotypical stories of churches splitting over the color of the carpet. That's real. That actually happens. That's what Paul's talking about. Udia and Syntyche don't want to agree about the carpet. Paul is pleading with them. He indeed could command them to be reconciled, but he is trying to draw them back to stand firm in Christ. This is what it looks like to stand firm. This is what it means to be united. This is what it means to confess we belong to Jesus. How can we, like the unforgiving servant, say, thank you for forgiving me my $4 billion, and then go wring the neck of somebody who owes us so little? The work of God in our lives, his spirit at work changing our hearts, calls us to peace. It gives us the ability to die to ourselves, to forget how others maybe have wronged us, to show grace and mercy because we have been shown so much grace and mercy. But it's not just in our relationships as we move throughout this passage. We get to verse 4 and we see that Christ also brings internal peace. So this is relational peace and, of course, uh, that has an internal dynamic to it. But ultimately, there is a work happening in our hearts. By being united to Christ, Paul tells us in verse 4 that we ought to rejoice in the Lord always. In case you didn't hear him, again, I will say rejoice. That our hearts ought to be filled with joy. That we ought to rejoice in the $4 billion debt relief. Talk about a stimulus package. Let your reasonableness, that's gentleness, selflessness, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing to people who probably aren't having a great time. They didn't actually just have $4 billion removed from their debts in terms of their physical life. They perhaps are actually facing difficult times. He, of course, is in prison, wondering if he might survive. 
But his call is to rejoice, to, to pray, and when you pray, to give thanks. To not be anxious. There's a passage from Nehemiah chapter 9. The exiles had just returned from their captivity. And worship is beginning to be restored. And they find a copy of the law. And Ezra reads it to the people. And they begin to weep. But Nehemiah says to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all people weep as they heard the words of the law. And as he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Something about our worship ought to carry with it a defiant joy. That regardless of our current circumstances, regardless of whether or not we have things in our own lives to rejoice over, when we gather together, these exiles coming out of generations of pain, back to a desolate place, and then hearing for the first time, probably in their lives, the words of God's law, being convicted of their sin and seeing how terrible their circumstance truly is. Nehemiah's exhortation to them, Ezra's exhortation to them, was one to rejoice, to feast, to have the wine, to eat the fat. When we come to worship, when we decide to come to church when we don't want to, When we don't have it all together, when we think our lives are just a mess, that's what it means to stand firm in Christ, to rejoice even though we shouldn't given our circumstances. Rejoice because of the Lord's favor. They had nothing about their circumstance that was great except that God had brought restoration He had brought them back to the land. He had brought them back to their word, to his word. And as Paul is calling the church here to rejoice, to come back to the Lord, to pray to him, to let their reasonableness be known to everyone, not coming in some sort of mighty, victorious life, but in humility Remembering that the Lord is at hand. They are rejoicing here because this day is holy. It is set apart. And so those who belong to Christ can rejoice because the Lord is at hand. We can rejoice because of what he has done. Here is perhaps our verse you all know perhaps too well. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. It's perhaps one of the most unfortunately misinterpreted verses in all of the New Testament. An exhortation from Paul to rejoice and to remember God's presence with his people used in a way that if you are filled with anxiety to shame you. 
Indeed, maybe there is some sense in which being anxious is sinful. But what Paul is not saying here is some sort of 11th commandment. That if you are anxious, you are a sinner and you need to repent. What Paul is saying here is that you don't need to be anxious. Right? What's the words just before he says, don't be anxious about anything? The Lord is at hand. They are, have every reason in their earthly life to be anxious. The man who planted their church is on death row, writing this letter to them. They are beginning to be ostracized in their community for belonging to the church. Paul says, you don't need to be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. In fact, go to him in prayer. Give him thanksgiving. And when you do that, when you come to the Lord in prayer, when you cast your cares upon him, when you bring your anxieties to the Lord, he will give you his peace. He will do a miraculous work in your heart. Peace which surpasses all understanding that will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It gets us into the second way in which our internal lives of peace are changed. Not only are we called to rejoice, but we are called to rest. To rest that God is present. We have all sorts of confessions of faith and statements about God's sovereignty and providence over our lives. But here is where it really matters. When we feel ourselves being anxious, uncertain, wanting to cower in fear, Paul reminds us of God's presence. The Lord is at hand. Our theology ought to inform the way we live, right? It ought to lead us towards gentleness. These two women can be reconciled because the Lord is at hand. They don't have to be right or wrong. They don't have to force their way. God is in control. We don't have to be. The past few years, I've done a lot more traveling than I have in my whole life. And every time I fly anywhere, it seems I go through O'Hare in Chicago. And my gate is always three miles away from the gate I need to get to. And I always have 30 minutes to get there, and I'm 15 minutes late, and my other plane is leaving 15 minutes early. So I get my workout running for my flight. And I tell you, that is where I am the most anxious person in the world. If I don't make my flight, this is the last one of the day. I'm going to have to sleep in Chicago in some hotel or in this airport. And then I'm going to be late to the meeting. And then all of this is going to fall apart. Only in my most recent encounters have I even been able to think the thought, God is in control. I can walk at a brisk pace <laughs> without too much anxiety. But what's behind our anxiety so often is that we are in control of our circumstances. And when they begin to fall apart, we feel like either we failed or we need to do something to remedy them. 
what does Paul call us to do when we have anxiety? Remember that God is at hand to pray to him, to give him thanks, to let our requests be known to him, and to expect that when we do, he will grant us his peace. Sometimes you meet people who are particularly anxious, and it's obvious to you. They, uh, they make you stressed out when you talk to them. They're always worried about the next thing. But then you might meet somebody who is the opposite of that, who doesn't have a care in the world. No, there's different reasons why people might act different ways. Can you imagine living your life in a way in which you are so captivated by God's love for you and control over all things? That as you see your life, whether it's going well, whether you're in prison like Paul, and you think, wow, God is really working this out. I wonder what's going to happen next, rather than fretting over whether or not your plans are going to come to fruition. What does it look like to give thanks while you're fretting? Oftentimes we seek internal peace not by God's miraculous, spirit-given peace, but by our own ability to reconcile our situations. To come up with a plan B. Paul is calling the church, he is calling us to have peace in our relationships because of our union with Christ and to seek the Lord's internal peace as we feel anxiety in our hearts. Lastly, Paul brings us to our third point, that Christ has his tangible peace with us. And he wants us to change the way we think. Uh, One commentator uh, has this interesting quote. You're not what you think you are. We all think about ourselves in a particular way. We're not what you, you not, you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. What does he mean by that? Often we have a very skewed view of who we are. We think things about ourselves. We might think too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. But the second part, but what you think you are, gets to the reality that the way we think about our lives, the way we think about God, it really does have an impact on who we become, on how we live our lives. We can find ourselves focused on so many other things, so many unhelpful things, so many sinful things, so many things that cause us to be anxious when Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of God and the rest of that will all be added to you. It's the same message here by Paul, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Meditate on them. Have them consume your mind. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The daily discipline of taking our anxieties and requests to God, 
seeking his peace and then being reminded of what is good, true, right, honorable, just, and pure is the call of what it means to stand firm. It's what it means to be found in Christ, to strive ahead, waiting to participate in the resurrection. I mean, look at this list of things. Think about all of the ways in which we can be so caught up in other things. Instead of truthfulness, we are focused on lies, but maybe more common speculation, rumors, gossip. Probably part of the reason why these two women are fighting. Misunderstandings, bitterness, things that are honorable, worthy of respect. Instead, we think about our differences, dishonoring things, divisions. God wants us to be somebody who focuses on just, the things that are just. Because justice brings peace. It brings resolution. It brings closure. Rather than ruminating on our own personal injustices. Things that are pure or holy. Something that's holy is able to be in the presence of God. The removal of sin. Things that are lovely. Commendable. So often the things that don't fall on this list are the things that grab our attention. It's what keeps the news cycle going 24 hours a day. Did you hear how terrible this was? Did you hear about these injustices? Did you hear about how that was not really true? And those are all just worldly categories for us. And what Paul primarily has in mind here is his people being united together. Being united in the truth, being united in the purity of the gospel, being united in the reality that Christ has paid all of our debts. He is at hand. Paul is exhorting us to not beat ourselves up. These commands aren't heavy handed, they are an entreaty from Paul. Why are you living your life this way? Why are you fighting with one another? Why are you filled with anxiety? The Lord is at hand. He is with you. He wants you to be at peace with one another within your own mind and heart. He wants you to think his thoughts, to have the mind of Christ. As we live our lives and are confronted with our own anxieties, Today and then this week ahead, perhaps we need to reflect on the ways in which we have divisions in our relationships, in our own internal life, anxieties, things that we just hold so dearly, we're so anxious about, that we try to control so closely, the things that consume our mind that are antithetical to what God has said is true. Maybe we can begin to practice what Paul is calling us to do here. To pray. To be reminded. And guess what? There's a promise. God's peace will come into our hearts. It won't change our circumstances necessarily. 
but it will fill our hearts with peace. It will bring peace among us, our disputes with one another. It will give us the ability to stand firm no matter what our circumstance may have for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ is our peace with you. But ultimately that that overflows, that we might have peace with one another, peace with ourselves. And Lord, that we would feel your peace in our hearts and amongst us as we gather together. Lord, help us to turn from our anxieties and instead to come to you in prayer, to give you thanks and praise. Help us to experience this peace that we might be able to stand firm in the gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.